Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Revelation Project Podcast. Today's guest is Jenna Arnold, who is the author of Raising Our Hands. She's an educator, a social entrepreneur, activist, and mother who lives in New York City with her husband and two children. Jenna was one of the national organizers of the Women's March in 2017, and Oprah named her as one of her 100 awakened leaders who are using their voices and talents to elevate humanity. For her work as the co-founder of Organize, an organization focused on ending the wait list for organ transplants in the U.S., Jenna was named as one of Inc. Magazine's 20 Most Disruptive Innovators. The New York Times called it one of the biggest ideas in social change. Jenna created the hit TV show on MTV, Exiled, which took spoiled American teenagers to live with indigenous cultures around the world. And while at the United Nations, Jenna created multi-platform programming for MTV and Showtime with A-list celebrities like Jay-Z and Angelina Jolie. Jenna sits on the board of the Sesame Workshop Leadership Council and is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Her first book, Raising Our Hands, about how white women can stop avoiding hard conversations, start accepting responsibility, and find their place on the new front lines, published in June of 2020. Hello, Jenna. Hi. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. So, so glad you're here. And I'm sitting in front of my copy of your just beautiful book. Congratulations. It's really extraordinary. And I've got so many notes and memos, and I just absolutely loved reading it. Thank you. I get particularly excited when I see people with highlighters. And when the book gets really messy, I can tell it's uh, it was helpful. Well, I'll have to show you a picture of it after this, because I literally have tabs sticking out all over the place. And I it's exactly what I was doing. I was taking all my various colored highlighters. I actually just want to first acknowledge where we're at, kind of just we're still in COVID just to orient everybody. And we really are in such a convergence of so many different, I feel like, systematic breakdowns Mm -hmm. in our society. And so it's really kind of just this amazing, provocative time, I think, for so many of us and a a very hard time. So I know that you have been dealing with some personal, um, some personal issues on top of it. And, you know, just had really had a a personal experience with COVID. Do you mind starting with that? Sure. My, um, and I say that so uppity, I don't know why that was so <laughs> enthusiastic, but there's nothing lovely about COVID. So my grandmother, who's 95, was one of 90 people in her old age home to contract the virus, and she is one of two that survived. And one of the women who's been what I like to, I call her like the co-founder of my life. She's been caring for my two children since they were itty bitties. And she also got COVID and she's in her 60s and she's here with us now. And we're so relieved to be with her again. But we were just talking before this conversation. She is convinced the reason that each of them were able to survive is because of the power of their minds because of the strength of their thought 
And, you know, it's a nice reminder. And our nanny, Karma, she is Tibetan. She's an asylum seeker. And as a child, she fled the Maoist rebels uh, through the Himalaya and carried her ailing father when she was like 12 for like 30 days through the Himalaya. And so this is like a warrior upon warrior upon warrior. And she leads a lot of the free Tibet movements here in the States. And so I hear her say, yeah, the reason I survived COVID is because of my mental capacity and my mental focus on healing. And, And I'm putting those very specific words in her mouth, but it was within that sort of just for me in this exact moment on this page in our history, it's important to hear that when we could all be so depleted and lack hope and confusion and just be in collective and individual despair and mourning. And so I think it's, you know, an opportunity for us to remind ourselves and each other that all oars need to go in the water and we all need to be rowing toward you know, a very specific direction. We sure do. Yeah, the mindset is so, so powerful and important. And I think we can sometimes forget that it's actually part of, I think, wellness and health is what we feed our minds, you know, with our thoughts. So I love that you said that. And I love how you led really right into kind of this collective, which brings us to your book of raising our hands and just, I love the title. I wanted to start by asking what that means to you. We really wrestled with the title. I mean, wrestled. And I'll never forget the bench I was sitting on on Broadway and probably 20th. I walked out of a meeting from Mason Kaiser and my publisher had sent me like 15 texts and she was just like, now, like we need this title now. And when I say the length of list, I think we were probably at around 11 pages, single spaced of options for titles for this book. And it was everything like from like super cross and like risky to even more innocuous than like something like raising our hands. And it was like, we, I got on the phone with them and it was like the 10th minute of the conversation. There was somebody on the call who was just like, well, what about raising our hands? And I remember thinking like, okay, don't do what you normally do, which is like, be so desperate for that to be the right answer that you get excited. And you're like, that's a great one. Let's do that one. But I remember being like, oh, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And what didn't the raising our hands title. And for those who have read it, there's an emoji throughout the book. And it's the emoji of this woman raising her hand. And they both came together independently of each other. So it's not like raising our hands was because of a direct reflection of the emoji. The emoji was in place. And for, again, for those who haven't read it, I found myself when I was writing the first draft of the manuscript, which was supposed to be a 70,000 word document, which I had no idea. Like the contract with the publisher was 70,000 words and I had to Google what that looked like. And that was like 215 page book. And for those who don't have it in front of you for reference, it ended up being like a 340 page book. So I kept writing, kept writing, and I ended up turning in 90,000 words for my first draft. But I kept coming to these moments where words were never sufficient. Mm -hmm. And I find that language in general is inadequate for this moment. And because I couldn't ever say with any level of articulation, I'm guilty, but I'm also willing to learn. I have, you know, anti-Semitic biases or racial biases or gender-based biases or biases against blonde-haired women with blue eyes, but I want to stop them. And like this constant contradiction of like who we are, both as individuals and as a country, I can never quite 
say like me too. Yes, I'm here. I'm showing up as well. And so I just started putting the emoji in place for those moments as a placeholder to come back to, to continue to wrestle more with language. And then by the time I finished the manuscript, I kind of looked at it and I prefaced um, the delivery of the manuscript to the publisher. And I was like, I promise you no author has ever sent you a manuscript that is loaded with emojis, but (laughs) in it, actually speaks way more than the words do. I was so relieved when she wrote back and she's like, I love the use of the emoji because it's true. Yeah, it, it well, and this whole thing you say about language is inadequate for this moment, I, I want to also acknowledge the fact that knowing that you feel that way, you also did an extraordinary job. No, thank you. you really, really did. I mean, there were ways that paradox and contradictions come up as I was reading over and over and over again. And you you just did such a great job of like really allowing those paradoxes to stand beside each other. Thanks. Yeah. What we have to do, right? You know, I particularly in this time, everybody's like, wait, what can I do? And corporations are like, okay, what's the turnkey solution here? And there's some very clear, obvious answers. And then there's like esoteric humanity based, the questions related to why we're even here that we're not answering anytime soon. And we have to be able to hold what I like to call the sacred and one of my very good friends is a a well-known author, Simon Sinek, who some of you might know. He said to me after I delivered the final draft of the manuscript, he and I were sort of workshopping some concepts and I was like, it's a sacred and we have to hold the and in a sacred way. And he's like, oh, tell me that's what your book's about. And I looked at him and I was like, it's not even in the book, not once. And he was like, yes, that's what happened once you deliver your book. Like, <laughs> show up. But it's true. Like we have to be in positions where we can hold all of the truths and hold all of the ends. You know, I want to be a good mom and I get particularly snappy when I have to ask my kids to brush their teeth four times in a row. I want to be a good citizen and sometimes I turn away from the news. And neither are my intention and ambition nor my excuses permission for me to not do. Mm-hmm. The the truth of the multidimensionalness of, of me. And hard truths hard truths. And actually, another hard truth, which I found so fascinating was that you released the book in June 2020, correct? Yes, a minute ago. (laughs) A minute ago. And I found it so I mean, I'm getting chills as I'm as I'm speaking of this, I found it so paradoxically, kind of, again, perfect in here's this white privileged woman, right? We're all white privilege. I say we're all like meaning you and I here today. Mm-hmm. That's written an incredible book about how white women can stop avoiding hard conversations, start accepting responsibility and find our place on the new front lines, right as the world is, you know, starting asking harder questions about whose voice should be listened to. Absolutely. And it was just, it was really interesting because I had connected with you on Facebook. And so I was, I was kind of watching you also really, really kind of grapple and go invisible and then show up. Right. So tell me, tell me what that was like. Yeah. I mean, it's one that is a fine line to walk constantly and one that I'll be walking surely through the rest of this life. We all will be. And 
you know, one of the historical challenges is that victors get to tell their story. So when you look at the history of this country, my favorite question that I love to ask people in the listening circles that I conducted for the book, Raising Our Hands, was who's our most revered president? And since you read the book, Monica, you're not a good person to ask because I know you know (laughs) how I'll answer that or how most people answer it. But most people just sort of flippantly say Lincoln. And then my follow-up question is always, well, why? And they'll say, oh, well, because he signed the Emancipation Proclamation and he ended slavery. And then I'm always so quick to remind everybody that yes, while he might have written that document, there's a couple of, there's two really important data points. There's really 10,000 important data points, but two for this, for the simplicity of this, this conversation and simplifying things is dangerous in its own right. One, he, on the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, DC, in bronze engraved letters, Lincoln references and says, and I quote, To save the union, or I ended slavery, to save the union, comma, and it is not to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leave others, I would also do that. So this idea that like Lincoln intentionally freed the slaves because of some like moral divine intervention should be questioned. But The other side of that conversation is that he was also responsible for allowing the genocide of the Native nations to thrive. And I use that term, quote, genocide very intentionally. I'll throw down why that word coming out of Jenna's mouth can carry some weight. Foreign policy is my academic background. I worked at the United Nations for a very long time. I understand the power and the intense and the horrific currency that comes with using a term like genocide. And I mean it in all of its complexity. That there was a genocide in this country that we do not talk about. A genocide that intentionally extinguished the indigenous communities throughout the land between the Atlantic and the Pacific. But because Abraham Lincoln was our victor, was the victor, has been the victor, he got to tell the story however he would like. And so we have to be very careful about who throughout history gets to tell what kind of story. And in a moment like now, particularly when people, marginalized communities, have been watching the rerun of their family members and loved ones, and they themselves constantly tortured, murdered, intentionally impressed over and over and over and over and over again. It's no one should hear from me and my thoughts on that. They have been asking us to look and pay attention, do something about it, do what in our capacity for centuries. You know, people are constantly like, oh, you know, 400 years ago, you know, is when the first enslaved people came to this country. Yes, but there was 13,000 years Before pre-colonial settlers, there was currently, from what we know, is that there is people who are living in this land 13,000 years before that. So we're talking about thousands and thousands of years of humanity here, and then a process that was extinguishing the indigenous population, and then a process that was enslaving human souls. And so, no, I'm not a anti-racist scholar. I'm not a scholar and a Lincoln scholar or an enslavement or an indigenous scholar or any of those kinds of people who are, whose voices do need to be centered when we're looking at history or when we're looking at what's happening now and connecting it back to history. So it's true that our responsibility is to be quiet and our responsibility is also to roar as loud as we can. 
And that's the paradox of the role that we're supposed to play. And when I say we're, I am referencing middle-class and above American white women. And when you coming back to the idea of like how we were trying to pick the title of this book, there are sometimes people are like, oh, well, what about stand up or everyone up or whatever it might be? And that we, you can't say that because sometimes it's our job to sit down and shut up. Mm-hmm. But this idea of raising our hand and say, I'm willing to be a student, I'm willing to listen, I'm willing to show up, I'm willing to concede, I know I'm going to mess up, I want to constantly do better, tell me when, how, and where, and I'll do it. Obviously, some of the most important work that we have to do is really in that room with you, or if you're listening while you're driving in that car with you. But this idea of, yes, this book was birthed in a moment that some people have asked me, were you surprised? And I am overwhelmingly floored and then not surprised in the least. Right. Both hold a sacred end. Because my hunch a number of years ago was that the data related to the behavior of American white women, which is one of the most powerful demographics on the planet, from a voting perspective, from a socioeconomic perspective, how they're raising white men, was not adding up with who I knew them to be. So say more about that, Jenna. When I stood on the stage in Washington, D.C. on Independence on 3rd on January 21st, 2017, the day after 45th president was inaugurated, and I intentionally don't say his name to the extent that I can, I looked out on a sea of a lot of pink pussy hats, and qualitatively, it looked like most of them were white. And I was wrestling with sort of what I could see from that stage and what I saw when I was walking throughout the crowd, and then what I saw in the numbers of some of the 667 other marches that were organized nationally and worldwide. And then I tried to add that up with the 54% of American white women that quote unquote voted for Trump in exit poll data November 8th, 2016. And while I'll never believe a poll again in my whole entire life, particularly not ones that are people standing on the doorsteps of high schools and clipboards asking people who they voted for after they left a a voting booth. But even if 54% of American white women was an inaccurate number, and if we give it 10% on either side, either a 10% margin, so it was really only 44%, or a 10% margin that it was really 64%, which you don't give those kind of academic margins in general. But if it was 44% or 64% or somewhere in between, that number is just surely too large. Mm-hmm. It's too large for who I know some most of these human beings to be. And taking all of that information and then in reflecting on people in my own life, my mom is one of nine. I was raised by phenomenal women who have gifted me their strength and curiosity and compassion and determination. There are the women who took me to third world countries to build homes, but yet they went into the voting booth on November 8th, 2016 and pulled the lever for a man that I know didn't align with their values. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't add up the data, what I saw, and then what I experienced in my life. And I had this sort of cosmic aha moment of like, oh, maybe this is what all of my activist friends over the past decade have been asking me to do when they say, can you please go get white women? And no one wants to be gotten. And the language again in that request is futile, but 
but I was sort of in that moment of like, oh, something is not adding up here. And so I sort of looked around like a meerkat and I was like, okay, where's the organization that I sign up for? And where do I donate money? What's the newsletter? And like, yes, let's go do this. And it was like crickets. There was nobody talking about this subject, the psychology around American white women in the voting booth, the civic interpretation of their roles. And this is one of the most powerful demographics on the planet. I was like, I can't, I can't not get these questions answered for myself. So I set off to sort of peel the onion back. Um, And I hosted listening circles across the country for the past four years, asking very existential questions to American white women about their identity, about their understanding of their role in the world, you know, what keeps them awake at night. My favorite one is always, what are you willing to fight for besides your kids? Mm. And yeah, I, I drew some conclusions and they're in a nice little book titled Raising Your Hand. So I want to go back to that, you know, what are you willing to fight for besides your children? What was your discovery? What was the revelation there? When I asked the question, what would you be willing to fight for beside your kids? Nobody was able to articulate what I'm going to interpret as my ingredient of hope for humanity, which was this internal commitment to the species, which sounds very mammalistic and it should, because I think there is truth to that. But this ideal of each other, this value of commitment to the future. And I'm very intentionally skirting words that are often part of the American narrative, like freedom and prosperity and all those kinds of things, because I think they come with some like patriotic baggage and mm. good and bad, and bad ways. But taking aside the flag in which I was born under and what some of your listeners might be, might have been born under, what humanity is desperate for in my research is this craving to be a part of the comings and goings of us. To have a role in protecting and creating and the ability to be able to participate. And again, you can call that freedom. You can call that, you know, free speech. You can call that a democracy, you can call that a bunch of different terms, but everyone was willing to do that to help humanity move forward. There's one story from a listening circle, which I haven't actually spoken about on a lot of podcasts and is briefly touched on in the book because it's a, it was a very complicated moment in a listening circle that might end up playing a little bit of a larger role in another book. And don't let my husband hear that I just said that, but... <laughs> So there was a participant in one of the listening circles who I posed the question to her early. The, the, the conversation moved to this direction very quickly. What are you willing to fight for? And she said, well, I, I am pro-life or I am anti-abortion. That's a really important edit that I just made of myself. Everyone's pro-life, but people who don't support abortion are anti-abortion. So she's an anti, she's, she said, I'm anti-abortion and I have been marching in the anti-abortion marches in in DC for 10 years. And I sort of filed this away. And then fast forward a couple of hours, a few more glasses of Merlot and Brie. And I started 
dating this idea with the room around reparations. And I didn't use that language because it can, it's, it hasn't yet, but given a minute, it's going to become a wedge political issue. But I started this concept of, okay, well, imagine if there's this woman who is juggling two jobs, has two children and finds herself pregnant again, and she decides she wants to terminate that pregnancy, but she doesn't have the $480 to do that. Would you, would you give her $480 to terminate? And, and the woman who had marched in all the anti-abortion marches raised her hand and said, yeah, I would do it. And I said, I just want to make sure I'm real clear with you. You said earlier in the conversation that what you're willing to fight for is you know, shutting down all the abortion clinics. But now you're saying you would give $480 for someone to terminate a pregnancy, an unwanted pregnancy. And she says, yeah, I would. And I said, well, how come? And she said, well, because I understand what it means to be a mom. And I understand the struggle of putting food in kids' mouths and just exhaustion. Like I just understand what it means to be human and how hard that is. So in pushing her, I said, well, there's plenty of nonprofits in the world (laughs) that support women in these moments when they have to make this decision. Why wouldn't you just then go give $480 to them? And she said, well, because I don't trust them. And it's true. Some of the larger organizations whose names I don't even need to mention, you all know who I'm referencing, have become political chess pieces in both good and bad ways, depending on where you fall. And she explained that she just doesn't trust the system. It's not that she doesn't support humans surviving. And so what I hear in that is our system is broken, not our humanity. Mm, it's such a it's such a powerful distinction. It's totally different. And I think everybody in the past couple of weeks, couple of months, surely around COVID can agree that our systems are broken. Our systems are broken. Yep. Not humanity. And while there are, there's plenty of human characteristics that are byproducts of our system, which I'm happy to dive into, which are becoming even more clear to me like day by day. But what she is willing to fight for, even as an anti-abortion activist, is the same thing that I'm willing to fight for. This idea of togetherness and humanness moving forward. Jenna, when I think about all of the different topics and systems that you brought up in Raising Our Hands and really kind of laid out what's broken about them. Annette, there's 480 sources. (laughs) It's incredible. Like this book is incredible, just resource wise. You know, again, the way that you really were able to kind of intentionally put these paradoxical concepts together and really untangle them, look at them from different perspectives. Like it was, it's so rich and it's, it's so helpful. It's so, so helpful. But where I really, really want to take our audience with you in this next piece is talk to me about the paradox of the oppression and the privilege of white women. That requires like 17,465 PhDs, dissertations, So I will just give you my thoughts, recognizing that this is like a very, while well-researched and while I have my finger on the pulse of this in this exact moment, it could change in like a matter of hours and surely will in a matter of years. White American women, because of our relationship with the patriarchy and the patriarchy being the system that centers men and that system that centers men also prioritizes and prefers and has 
built systems that select whiteness as the other key ingredient because of our relationship to both of those systems known as patriarchy and white supremacy, we derive benefit from that, even though we are not at the top of the org chart. When you think about like the Tour de France or any bicycle race, and I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to bicycle races, but what I do know is that when they bike together really close to each other, they get to draft off each other, right? Mm. The person at the front is like breaking the wind. I, I don't understand how this is possible, but they obviously know what they're talking about. But the person at the front of the triangle when they're biking breaks the wind. So the people who are immediately behind them aren't fighting as hard into, you know, the wind as the person in the front. And that's white middle-class and above women where we're not the leader. We're not going to be the ones that cross the finish line first to get the gold medal, but we're like drafting off them and get that second place position or like in that top 10 position, right? Like we just reap the benefits of somebody in front of us. So from a systemic perspective, it means that we get different attention when we deliver our babies in hospitals than uh, Black women do. It means that when we're shopping in a grocery store, if one of our kids are nagging and I'm raising my hand right now, nagging and being annoying and everyone wants to get out of the situation, you'll like open a bag of chips just to shut them up. And nobody, no manager comes up to you and confirms that you're going to pay for it or gives you a side eye of distrust. It means that if police officers pull you over for a speeding ticket, they're not going to randomly ask you to get out of the car and search it. So systems that prefer and have centered whiteness, we get to benefit from if we're also white, right? Yeah. But in a system that prefers maleness over femaleness, we have more rungs to climb. And again, I'm I'm walking in very, very, very delicate territory here because the truth is, is we should now also spend a long time talking about white feminism because when we think about like reproductive rights or gender pay gap, or, you know, sometimes in, in conversations with men, and I've been hosting a lot of listening circles with men as well, you know, they'll say like, I don't really believe in the gender pay gap because my boss is a woman and she makes more than I do and da, 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 da. And rarely do I show up and then say, okay, well, an indigenous woman makes 52 cents of your dollar just because she's an indigenous woman. And like, rarely do I start fire hosing some of those kinds of ideas, but white women only make something like between 75 and 90 cents per male dollar, right? So there's something like, there's $513 billion in lost wages annually because of the gender pay gap. $513 billion. Imagine how many babysitting hours, how much investment into real estate, how many medical bills could be paid, how many women might be able to, you know, buy the slightly more expensive kale smoothies so that their cells are regenerating better. So there's billions of dollars in lost wages related to the gender pay gap. But then if you look at whose voice gets heard in boardrooms, right? I've always found it so fascinating. My co-founder of Organize 
was a man. And sometimes when we were in business meetings and it was just like three people, so he and I, and then somebody else, and we were talking about our work. And if the other person tended to be, if it were a man, they would make eye contact with him like 80, 85% of the time and not me. And I'd speak just as much, if not more, if you can't tell, like I have a lot to say. (laughs) It wasn't until I said to him, did you notice that that guy rarely made eye contact with me and was only looking at you? And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then over the years I gave him, we like developed this code system of like, Hey, pay attention to how much he looks at you versus me. And he started to notice it. So it's like, it's not just eye contact, eye contact and whose voice is being heard and who's making decisions on behalf of marginalized communities. So it's like this idea of like, yes, we can draft off somebody who's ahead of us, but because we're a woman and women, there are exactly zero pronouns referencing her or she in the constitution. The United States is considered the 10th most dangerous country in the world behind Syria and two spots behind Yemen because of our domestic violence rates and because of how we treat women in medical spaces, primarily in labor and delivery. So we have both our race that has been a a tool that has helped us maneuver through systems. And then we also have our gender, which has been baggage. Yeah, it's just, it's so incredible. I I think, again, going back to just the, the, the real kind of complexity involving kind of untangling all the ways in which, again, these two concepts stand side by side. There's this calling forth, I think, for all of us now, especially as we continue to see all of what is at stake to raise our hands as you're talking about. And really what I'm wanting to surface next is what we have to be willing to be with in order to make change happen. So talk more about these hard conversations, accepting responsibility and finding our place on the new front lines. So what we have to be willing to be with is the all. Say more. The inherited systems that some of us are just opening our eyes to and are just looking in that direction and saying, wow, that's not working anymore. And then being willing to say, well, has that ever worked? And then take it a step further and say, wow, that was thriving on my watch while I was working on my tan and mm. and my, you know, gluten-free granola muffins. <laughs> my kale smoothie. My kale smoothie. Maybe this time with some CBD oil. You know, I what is either going to happen or not going to happen is that the privileged communities in this country are going to be able to say, yeah, me, I did that. That was on my watch too. And what some people will say is like, well, I never owned a slave. And it's like, okay, but that's not what we're talking about right now. You own things that are direct beneficiaries of a system that did 300 years ago. And there's systems that exist right now that are thriving in ways only because people are suffering as a consequence. So we have to be able to say, 
and I heard this a lot in my listening circles where white women would say things like, I really am good, or I really am well-intended, or I really am a good Christian, but I didn't know that this was happening, but I didn't vote because there wasn't wasn't a perfect candidate, but my husband means well, but he doesn't know any better. And so there's so much qualifying of the goodness of each of us individually before we qualify the goodness of our state or goodness of our country or goodness of the narrative or the history that we tell ourselves and the rest of the world about who we are. So there's like this desperation to qualify ourselves as what I think is the human trait of confirming our worthiness. And so if we can move all of that aside and say, as Brian Stevenson says, you're not the worst thing that you have ever done. And I'm not interested in knowing where you fall on the spectrum of having racial biases or not. I just want you to know that you are on that spectrum instead of trying to figure out whether or not you are or aren't, take a big step back and position yourself as a goalie so you can catch the racial biases from that spectrum because you have them. And so do I. And so what we have to do is, you know, we have to move out of this binary state. We're so good at living in the binary world of it's either good or bad. You're a Democrat, Republican. You're on the winning team or in the losing team. You're right or you're wrong. And we have to move back into the gray, the I don't knowness, the grace of gray, I like to call it another treasure that is not in the copy of my book. Mm, I love that. The grace of gray. Absolutely. And Well, I think what you're also pointing to is this real truth I feel like you surface in the book, which is kind of this dangerous connection between perfectionism and whiteness. That's right. Yeah. That's our, I mean, I called it the the Achilles heel of the country. And do you think that we as white women are, are responsible for holding that up? And if so, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that. Yes. And... (laughs) and paradox. Yes. So um, even the other night I said to my husband, I was like something, 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 but, and he was like, don't you mean, and I was like, yes, I mean, and yeah, we're responsible for it. And we might not have known how bad the disease was. Like I say complacency is the cancer of humanity and people probably don't think of themselves as complacent or apathetic. Right. It's right. It's hard not to when you're suddenly like, wait a second, police systems aren't working. Like I knew it was bad, but I didn't think it was that bad. You know, like there's the excuses, what Dr. Fielding Singh, a a professor out at Stanford coined the phrase, the cognitive acrobatics that we perform. Like there's the backflip and the cartwheels and the, you know, the tadaness of like, you know what, it's just easier for me to put the kids to sleep, buy all the Christmas presents, juggle my job and my boss. If one of my kids gets sick and I have to leave early, like, it's just these, like, it's just easier for me to do it. Yes. Which really I interpret as complacency and apathy and potentially like very dangerous and violent to other people, right? Like I'm not going to vote because there isn't a perfect candidate. Well, what that really says is I don't want to take time Mm. out of my day to sit with the uncomfortable truth that neither candidate might be able to bring perfect equality, prosperity, happiness to all human beings and that 
the candidate that I pull the lever for might in fact do it wrong, even if I think she is the most qualified in this moment. And instead of sitting with that paradox, I'm just not going to look. And if I don't look, then I don't have to do anything about it. And so, but that lack of vote, that not voting means that we have a president that is currently doing what he's doing to women and babies on the border, Mm. what he's doing to people in all of our lives, even though you might not know it, who were at risk of being deported, our embarrassing relationship now with the rest of the world, how he's trampled on the environment in ways that I don't think we ever recover from, right? Like once we like turn the corner out of this extraordinary social rights, social justice movement that is, you know, in the first quarter of its existence. And we suddenly pick our head up and are like, oh, right, that rising sea again, right? Like, so because we didn't want to look at the imperfection of our systems and of our candidates and the humanity that they had, we put somebody in office that's become very dangerous and very violent, There is blood on the hands of, this is a very controversial thing I'm about to say, but I'm walking into it, eyes wide open. There are blood, there's blood on the hands of those voters. Mm -hmm. I saw the best poster I've ever seen at a protest was at the Women's March in 2017. And I've seen brilliant, brilliant signs at protests. I love, I love sort of that gallery viewing experience. Um, But there was one poster that said your vote was a hate crime. Mm -hmm. And coming out of the foreign policy space, coming out of the United Nations, I'm very dangerous on what a hate crime is. I am very, very clear on what currency and pain political decisions make. And I have yet in the past four years to disagree with that poster. And what's frustrating about it is the people who I love so dearly are guilty of that, what I call hate crime. And what was part of my reconciling was they don't understand how the term hate crime can be applied to siding with somebody who has one priority and one interest in mind. I know they didn't get it. I know they didn't appreciate what it was because it was too hard to navigate, right? We as, there's a section in the book around how our brains scaffold information. We mammals turn away from things that are too hard to process, that aren't sortable, that aren't easy to put in different categories. And imperfection is one of those things. We were one of the founding messages of this, the chapter in this country that started with Europeans coming over to colonize this land was encouraged by Pope Nicholas V in the late 1400s when he wrote a papal bull, which is the equivalent of an executive order. So not law, but it's air cover, like it's legal air cover, which essentially said it was the Pope's interpretation of a clause of Deuteronomy, which said, if you are a white Christian man, you have the right to own, take, and he used language like pillage, Mm. other things that aren't owned by other white Christian men. You are the chosen demographic. You are the ones who are all knowing. So they took that over here and many other places around the world. In fact, like imperialism and colonialism is all based on this concept of like, well, we know better. And so 
when they brought that attitude here and so many other places around the world that is, are still recovering in ways that are even more atrocious than what's happening here in this country, they brought that here. It essentially said, well, if you are of this, if you check these series of boxes, you know the right answer. And that's trickled up to this exact moment where you open up a textbook and it says this country was founded by, let me tell you how I interpret it, seven foot white strapping men with 0% body fat who were always leaning on the, you know, the front, the bow of a boat with like absolute confidence about how to like go in whatever direction to win whatever battle, right? We call them the founding fathers and we talk about it being like, you know, the morals and values that this country was founded on. Mm-hmm. The founding fathers, and I talk about this in the book, they hated each other. They were not getting along. There was no, like, there was not a lot of like, Tree hugging, holding hands. This is like the birth of a new nation-ness happening. <laughs> right. <laughs> it did not look like that. No. But yet the story we tell is like perfect and clean and organized and sorted. Right, right. It, it, it was all messy, messy, messy business. Messy, ugly, ego-filled. And there is um, a Rousseau who is a a French political advisor and very literally a political advisor at the time. And he said to the founding fathers, he said, whatever you do, keep women out of this, keep them out of the documents. Don't let them have any, don't let them have any power. So Rousseau said, as the founding fathers were trying to design this democracy and trying to figure out what citizenship would look like. He says, I quote, women must certainly be excluded, comma, because they are psychologically too powerful and too domineering to be allowed to share political authority. Mm. End quote. Keep them away because we are too powerful. Jenna, it's just, I know we're at time here, but I just want to say like, I could talk to you forever about this. And I also want to really encourage our our listeners. First of all, raising our hands is packed with in- some incredible data and information. Obviously, you can you can uh, see how knowledgeable and also how willing to make mistakes. I think Jenna, that's the other thing I really love about you. Right? Is just you're you're putting stuff out there. You assert a lot of things. You're not saying that they're true. What you're doing is really kind of unraveling all of these various concepts and starting to look at what needs to happen in order for white women to start looking at where we are holding up the patriarchy, where we're holding up and contributing to white supremacist systems, and how our behaviors continue to contribute to that cycle of privilege. And what you're asking us to do is to start to exercise certain muscles to be with difficult emotions and difficult truths and allow those truths to kind of be self-evident. There's a certain amount of, yes, kind of what I call coming out of the trance that has to happen for white women, but certainly this book is a trance buster. And I want to just encourage everybody to to grab it. It's Raising Our Hands by Jenna Arnold. And I want to thank you, Jenna. Thank you. And just invite you to say any final words, but we'll be sure to put all of your links in the podcast. And I I just have loved this conversation so much. My note is thank you for being here. And this isn't going to be easy, but we all need to put our oars in the water and row in the same direction. And now's the time. Now is the time. Thanks, Jenna. Thanks so much for all you're doing. Thanks so much. More to be revealed. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.